From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Today, we'll test Coloradans' beliefs about each other. How accurate is your perception of people who have different political views? The risk is that you turn them into caricatures, extremists who share none of your values. That's, I think, why I was so startled by this, because I feel like I had a better handle on what the other side, for lack of a better term, believed. Why a perception gap threatens democracy. Then, how I-70 construction affects people's health. And then when we step outside, that's when our asthma really kicks in. We have a really hard time breathing in. And later in the show, Denver salutes a black cycling pioneer. He went down in the south and raced where he was threatened with lynchings, but he continued to dominate his sport. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Americans on the left and right misunderstand each other. They think the other side is more extreme than they actually are. This is according to a new study. It's called The Perception Gap, How False Impressions Are Pulling Americans Apart. And Stephen Hawkins of Denver helped put it together. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me on, Ryan. Before we dig into this perception gap... I want to read a line from your report about what you believe is at stake here. This is how countries fall into a cycle of deepening polarization, how democracies die. Expound on that. That's right. We're working, my organization's name is More in Common, we're working in Germany, France, the UK, and the US. So we have a global perspective when we work on these issues. And there's a growing literature and a growing concern among experts that confidence in democracy declining higher levels of hostility and animosity between parties, support for fringe parties, all of these things are pointing towards the direction of democracies really entering a place of decline. And that's a genuine concern for us. Indeed, the organization is more in common that you're with a nonprofit whose mission is to reduce polarization in democracies. And to your key finding, Americans have a deeply distorted understanding of each other. You come to this conclusion after surveying 2,100 Americans on some seemingly divisive issues, climate change, immigration, racism, sexual assault. How did you go about measuring a perception gap? What we did is we asked people to estimate what percent of their political opponents would agree to a certain statement. So we asked Republicans what Democrats would think, and we asked Democrats what we thought Republicans would think. And then we just asked people, do you agree with this statement? And we just calculated the difference. And we found that pretty consistently, especially on these most divisive issues of immigration and racism and sexual assault, people are pretty have a pretty bloated, distorted, caricatured view of what their political opponents think. They just overstate it. Give us an example of an issue and where you saw that sort of bloated perception. Sure. So the big issue of the day is obviously immigration with the detention centers and the border wall. On that one, we saw that we we asked Demo- we asked Republicans what percent of Democrats do you think would be opposed to completely open borders and they thought only thirty eight percent of Democrats would oppose completely open borders actually found that seventy percent do and we asked Democrats do you think Republicans believe that immigration if it's properly controlled can be good for America and they said we think only about half of 
Republicans think that properly controlled immigration can be good for America. Actually, 85% do. So even on these questions that are really in the news all the time and that are so central on these very extreme positions of completely open borders versus whether immigration can even be good if it's controlled, we find that there's a pretty big gap between reality and perception. Okay. You have a version of this poll on your website, a kind of quiz. Mm -hmm. Uh, It asks what your party affiliation is. Uh, You can also say you're unaffiliated. And then it presents you with questions about uh, indeed, where other members, uh, members of other parties, that is, stand on certain hot button issues. Um, we had a few of our listeners take the quiz, uh, Stephen, and uh, report their experience. I'm glad you mentioned the immigration question. Why don't we start with a Republican? Christine Jacques lives near Wonderview, Colorado. That's between Golden and Boulder. The last question was the U.S. should abolish ICE, Immigration and Customs Enforcement. And I was surprised at the number of D's who disagreed with that. You thought more Democrats would want to abolish ICE than actually do? Exactly. I was surprised that there weren't more Dems who wanted to abolish ICE. Now, Jacques wasn't the only person on the line during that call. Lori Links Murphy of Denver is registered unaffiliated, but calls herself far left. And uh, she shared her experience with the quiz which wound up sparking a conversation with Jacques. I consider myself a climate change activist and have been since I was a teenager. And I had felt that there were more Republicans that would deny climate change than actually came up in the results of the test. You know, I've worked in renewable energy, and I've been surprised at how scientific some Republicans can be. Yeah, I mean, some of it is just that we're starting to see results of it now. We're starting to see things change. It's not as possible to deny climate change anymore, I think. So perhaps more agreement on climate change than you might think from press coverage or social media. One last voice, this one from the Western Slope. Scott Braden lives in Grand Junction, uh, also unaffiliated, but he says, I'm functionally a Democrat. Uh, Here's his experience with the Perception Gap quiz. I think the ones where it stood out the most for me was that the acknowledgement that racism still exists and, you know, maybe the acknowledgement that common sense immigration reforms, for example, uh, there might be more common ground there than I thought. Uh, do you think this might change any conversations you have? Or Well, I mean, it's a pretty personal issue for me because, you know, as a more liberal person, my wife and I live in a fairly conservative part of the state, so it's important for us to be able to talk to a wide variety of our, our neighbors. My own mom and a lot of members of my family are very conservative politically. So I, that's, I think, why I was so startled by this, because I feel like I had a better handle on what the other side, for lack of a better term, believed. I was reading the other day, there's a thing called like motivation bias. We're almost all wrong about what motivates the other side in a political debate. You know, people tend to think that the other side is all motivated by bad reasons. Uh, And we're almost always wrong about that. So it just kind of confirms for me that, that there's really something to that, that we shouldn't assume that we understand what motivates people with whom we have political difference. But Stephen, so little of that sensibility is reflected in Washington. Hmm. I mean, for example, it seems like Republican leadership is about as likely to move on climate change as a polar bear is to dance in a tutu. I, <laughs> um, help us understand the disconnect there. 
you're finding that the the populace is not as extreme as we might imagine. Um, and yet that's not reflected in Washington. Right. Well, this is because of something that in the report we called a polarization ecosystem, which is just our fancy way of saying that the incentive structures for politicians and for media organizations are to cater to those more ideological extremes, those more partisan groups, because of those ones that vote in primaries, those are the ones that donate dollars, those are the ones that go out and knock on doors for campaigns. And they're the ones that are going to be held, that are going to hold their elected officials accountable if they deviate from their ideological position. And so we're in this really frustrating place where there's an exhausted majority of two thirds of Americans who really want to see the political parties work together to get things done. And it's the fringes that really have so much power right now. And the perception that those fringes are actually larger than they are is something which is exacerbated by the media. Okay. As a member of the news media, I guess I want to reflect on that just a little bit. What do you think the incentive is? And maybe we can broaden this to social media as well. What is the incentive to keep people divided then? The incentive is that if you can create a story where there is real threat and danger posed by another side, then and then you can create a kind of heroic story of the people who are on the right side and they need a hero and they need loyalty and they have the right values. There's just a lot of drama there. Outrage and that fear, outrage well. sells, fear sells. And um, people connect to media personalities that seem to validate and affirm that identity that they have, their political identity. It's not true for all media organizations. And we actually measured the effect of media consumption of different types of media on distorting people's perception of the other side. And we saw a lot of variety there. Some of the more network news shows actually show almost no change in people's perception gap. And then some of the more right-wing conservative sources, we actually saw to have the strongest distorting effect. Sources like Drudge Report, Sean Hannity, those are the ones that really seem to have the strongest association with people who have a distorted perception of their opponents. You looked at the perception gap as it relates to education as well. And there's actually some fascinating uh, revelations about Democrats in particular. Help us understand that. Sure. So we found that Republicans and Democrats are both pretty equally poor at guessing what the other side thinks. Okay. With Republicans, it's stable across education levels. With Democrats, it's not. With Democrats, we find that as people pursue additional degrees, two-year degree, four-year degree, graduate degree, they become at each level 11% more likely to say, almost all of my friends or all of my friends share my political beliefs. So what's happening is it's not necessarily that the education is transforming people into perceiving Republicans or conservatives more extreme than they are. What we found is that people's networks, their social circles, are actually narrowing to exclude people who are more conservative and Republican. And that happens increasingly as they become more educated. And that is uh, disproportionately true for Democrats as they get more educated. They, in a way, get more in a bubble than Republicans as they get more educated. That's exactly right. So we can assume that Republicans uh, who become more educated maintain friendships with more liberal people. That's right. And that correlates very strongly with having a more informed and more positive and more accurate read on the other side. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're speaking with uh, the head of research at a nonprofit called More in Common. Uh, This group fights political 
polarization. Stephen Hawkins of Denver is talking to us about his latest research, The Perception Gap, How False Impressions Are Pulling Americans Apart. Uh, I, I wonder if political figures like President Trump add another layer to this. I mean, so much of what you're hoping for here is nuance in the conversation and listening, not assuming the other side's intentions. And yet the country's most powerful elected official deals in hyperbole and labels and caricatures. Uh, how, How does the White House play into this, do you think? Well, I think the White House understands these dynamics very intuitively, very well, that if they can construct an enemy that is frightening and threatening and um, all socialists who don't who think the police are bad people and who don't believe in borders, that is a real animated force, animating force for Republicans to turn out to vote, to give money. You find, quote, even on the most controversial issues in our national debates, Americans are less divided than most of us think. This is good news about the character of this country, end Mm. quote. Uh, But you say to bridge the perception gap, that is how, you know, Democrats view Republicans and Republicans, Democrats. It is not enough to make friends with people of the other party or to even diversify your news sources. You say strong forces in society benefit from exaggerating disagreements and inciting conflict. So how do you begin to change the more systemic issues that you've talked to us about? I mean, they seem intractable in a way. I think we need to be looking to our national leaders, our elected officials, to be having this conversation, not just about laws and regulation, but to talk about American society, America as a group of people. We are falling apart. There's greater levels of hostility and division between us. And that's a real source of problems for our country. We need our leadership to focus on this specifically as a problem and speak to it. We should be expecting Democratic candidates on the presidential stage to speak to the problems of of polarization in our country, and to be proposing solutions and embodying those solutions in their own behavior. How does an issue like abortion play into this? So there is more common ground you have found on something like climate change and potentially immigration policy. But then there are these wedge issues that seem to have no middle ground. Is it, one, is that a safe assumption? Is that even true, what I've said there? And, and two, how do you see that playing into this more nuanced national conversation? Well, there is a, a majority of Americans who can sort of agree on some of the basic parameters of what our abortion laws should be. But abortion is that while it's not an item that we study specifically in this study, it's actually one of the first areas that were explored in this problem of what's called false polarization. We refer to it as the perception gap. The academic community refers to it as false polarization. It's the idea that the other side has more extreme views than we do. And that study goes back to 1992 and found that Democrats and Republicans on the specific issue of abortion were far more likely to overstate the extremity of each other's positions than what the actual data suggests. Mm. Gosh, uh, down to that issue. Thanks, Stephen, for being with us and talking us through the research. Thanks so much for having me. Stephen Hawkins of Denver leads research at More in Common, which fights political polarization globally. And he talked to us about his latest study, The Perception Gap, How False Impressions Are Pulling Americans Apart. You can measure your own perception gap by taking a quiz. We'll have it later today at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters. 
It's one of the most polluted neighborhoods in the country. Asthma rates are through the roof. And families in Illyria, Swansea in North Denver say the problem's only gotten worse with the massive I-70 expansion. Denver Post photojournalist R.J. Sangosti spent more than a year with two families in this neighborhood. R.J., welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Ryan. And the families you followed both have children with asthma. One is 13-year-old Olivia Sanchez. She describes what it's like to live so close to that major interstate. Since I live in Swansea, I'm really close to the I-70. Um, there's a lot of traffic and a lot of semis on that highway, so whenever we step outside, that's when our asthma really kicks in and we have a really hard time breathing in. How has living in this highly polluted zip code, now the site of a years-long construction project, how has it affected their daily lives, their their health? Well, the thing is with these kids... Um, you know, I, I grew up with childhood asthma, um, so I kind of understand what they're going through. And it's just the, the pain of not being able to go outside when you want to go outside and do the things you want to do. Um, and this construction project has just made that a little bit worse for them. Um, these families have to monitor, monitor when they can go outside, and they're limited to the time that they play outside for the kids. And it's just the livelihood of these kids is just a little bit um, damp dampened by this construction project. I know that the families are also constantly cleaning their houses. Yeah, so Nancy um, has two girls um, that are 8 and 13, and she uh, cleans their house probably three times a day with Clorox, heavy bleach, um, because she doesn't know much, um, doesn't know better, um, that she thinks that if she keeps the germs away, that's going to keep keep her kids um, healthy, and uh, it's going to help affect the asthma. And uh, it's just, the, the thing is, is um, these these families don't aren't educated the right way on how to treat their asthma. And it, what I've found is a lot of the, uh, um, you know, asthma can be treated pro- if properly um, looked at. And the thing is, is these families are just aren't getting the medical advice that they need. And they're, you know, ending up in the hospitals and ER visits. And it's being a, it's a damper to our um, hospitals. I was thinking on my commute this morning how much wealthier neighborhoods are also along major interstates. I mean, the University of Denver, those neighborhoods are along I-25, Wash Park, Greenwood Village. Help us understand why Elyria Swansea stands out then. Well, the industry of North Denver. And, you know, one of the reasons I came to this project is recently I worked for the Denver Post and we recently moved from our downtown building um, our editorial department moved to North Denver, where our printing plant is, and it's in the heart of industrial North Denver. So um, we're every day when I'm driving into the office, I can taste the pollution. It's so bad in that area. And um, a lot of my colleagues complain of headaches on a daily basis. So it really opened my eyes to how bad the pollution is in that area. So this construction project isn't the main reason why these kids have asthma, but the thing is, is it's an, just another thing to add to what's happening with the, the air quality in that area. Long term, though, with the lid that will be placed on I-70, what do the neighborhoods here, for instance, from the state, from CDOT, about any improvements that might occur to health? Well, you know, I... 
I don't know. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a photojournalist, so I, I, you know, I'm not like your average reporter. Um, I dove into this as a narrative, um, and I follow these families just to see what they, what they had to say about it. And, um, you know, these families particularly are, are upset about kind of what the plans were and how they were discussed. Um, you know, Yarda believes that this just isn't enough. Um, she thinks that we're going to outgrow this construction project in, in the time that it's done in four years. So um, I think the families are just kind of upset with the communication that ha- happened with CDOT. But um, I know CDOT has put out 1-800 numbers for families to call. Um, and I, I think I think, I think think some of the families think there's going to be some long-term um, benefits to this project, but um, I think that's just yet to be determined. CDOT has made some investments in this neighborhood along with this project as well. Correct. And um, so a lot of, uh, you know, they had some programs where they put in windows for f- families that lived um, a bl- one block away from the interstate. But uh, as we, we know, air pollution doesn't stay in uh, the one block radius. So a lot of these families were kind of uh, upset about those programs too, because it just wasn't in the range of what 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 the pollution effects. Your photos, uh, which truly really feel like portraiture in many ways, are in black and white. I wonder why you decided to uh, remove color, not have color in the first place. Aesthetically, I just thought over time, um, I shot this over 18 months, so, yeah. um, and I um, just had many different locations and different different types of light. And just to keep it together as one piece, that was just the, the, the right decision. Is there a certain emotion that comes along with black and white that you think they're trying to convey? Yeah, you know, I just think that it helped kind of set the tone for the sad story that these families are going through. And uh, um, I just think that the, it was the right decision to kind of carry the piece through. What do you think most surprised you? in the year and a half that you took these photographs? I think the thing that most surprised me is that these families, a lot of these families in this community didn't, don't feel like they have a voice. And, uh, um, one of the, one of the stories that I was told was a family that's, um, dealing with air, air problems and uh, health problems with breathing. And they have severe mold in their house and they're scared to say anything because they're scared that their landlord is going to raise their rent. And you have to think about the displacement in yes. this neighborhood and as the, well. And the way that Denver is growing, they're scared that they're not going to find rents in the $1,000 mark. So these families are petrified to raise their voice for, for things that are hurting them. So that's what, it, it's, that's what hit me the hardest. I bet they were able to get a voice in this story. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. Denver Post photojournalist R.J. Sangosti. He spent a year with families in Denver's Illyria Swansea neighborhood, actually a little longer than that. It's one of the most polluted neighborhoods in the country. Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour. I'm Ryan Warner, and you're with CPR News. In this world of legal weed in Colorado, what happens to the people who have convictions for marijuana from pre-legalization? Once they called me back, I would tell them that I do have a misdemeanor marijuana conviction and if they're able to hire me. And all of them said no. We talk expungement, sealing, and lots of other fun legal vocab words on the latest episode of On Something, the new podcast from CPR about life after legalization. Listen and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. 
You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. It seemed to pop up overnight. There's a huge mural of a man on a bike. This is along the Cherry Creek Trail in Denver. In just three days, muralist John Pucci, who grew up in Denver, painted a tribute to Marshall Major Taylor, the first black world cycling champion. When I first discovered him, it was like, oh, wow, this African-American cycling, like specifically track cycling champion of the world and dominated his sport. But then when you get into it and you're like, oh, my goodness, like he was doing this in the 1890s and retired in 1917. That's when you're like, wow, that's pretty incredible. Yeah, that's what blew my mind was the timing of all of this. Exactly, exactly. So what did he do in the sport and in larger America that you think is so remarkable? Well, so his first professional race that he ever competed in, he was 18, and it was at Madison Square Garden. They used to hold six-day races there. So basically, riders are racing nonstop for six days. And you can get off the bike, you can sleep, you can rest, you can eat. But while you're doing that, other people are racing. And whoever is still standing at the end, it's whoever's gone the furthest is the winner. And so he showed up to it. He was the only black man in the entire field. And before they hold the six days, they do a sprint. And he won the sprint. And so all these guys who had been racing together, who were all professional cyclists who were older than him, and they were all white, saw this 18-year-old black man show up and just smoke them all in the opening race. And they were just like, who is this guy? Mm -hmm. And then during the six-day race, they tried to knock him off his bike. They tried to do everything they could to stop him. And (laughs) he just kept going. And out of a field of over 30 riders, he placed sixth, I believe, pretty incredible to have won his first race and then be able to even just hold on for those six days. And the accolades kept coming. And the accolades kept coming, yes. He then went on to race all over the U.S. He went down in the South and raced where he was threatened with lynchings, he was threatened with violence, but he continued to race, he continued to dominate his sport. He raced in Canada, he raced in Europe, he raced in Australia, and crown track world champion, uh, I believe, in 1899 yeah. in uh, Canada. How did you first find out about him? You're a cyclist yourself. Yeah, I, I got into road cycling quite a bit when I was in college. I was in art school down in Savannah, Georgia. Got way into road cycling and then got into track bikes. And there was a company at the time that made a handlebar called the Major Taylor. And it was just a really aggressive, deep drop track bar. And it was when you say deep him. drop, so you're you're in that kind of so imagine uh, when you see a, a a cyclist down like in their sprinting position yeah. and they're holding onto the bottom of the bars. Imagine the bottom of the bars is as low as it possibly can be, where it's like almost down to your knees. Like that's what it looked like, hmm. and I was just like, who would be crazy enough to even ride something like that? And then so I started looking up who this guy was and what his history was. I'm a big fan of history in general, and so then seeing like all these old pictures of this guy in this super aggressive position racing way back in the day. It just immediately piqued my interest. Okay, describe the mural you painted. What were you trying to capture with Major Taylor on the bike? So the mural is him in that sprinting position, bent over, um, you know, in a full tuck, as he would have raced back in the day. Um, I sort of looked at some old photos of him and took that as the inspiration. I changed the colors a little bit. Obviously, the 
photos from back then were black and white, so I made it kind of yellow and purple so it could pop. And then he has ribbons that he's sort of like racing through that have a quote from him uh, that runs through the whole piece. What's the quote? I pray they will carry on in spite of that dreadful monster prejudice and with patience, courage, fortitude, and perseverance achieve success for themselves. He was talking specifically about African-Americans. In general. Um, Yeah, that Mm. was from his memoir that he wrote. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're learning about this fascinating guy, Major Taylor. Uh, He was an early black cyclist and a world champion. And there is a mural of him now along the Cherry Creek Trail in Denver. We're speaking with the artist John Pucci. And John, uh, the city of Denver put out a call for artists for this stretch of the bike trail. You applied. And at the same time, you reached out to the Major Taylor Cycling Club in Denver. Yes. There's a a chapter of this. Why was that important to you? When I wanted to present this, part of it was also I found a, a photo years ago of a black cycling club in Denver from 1910 and read that they were inspired by the success of Major Taylor. And there were black cycling clubs that popped up all over the country at that time. Uh-huh. Since then, there have been Major Taylor cycling clubs that have popped up all over the country to spread the word of Major Taylor because not that many people, unfortunately, know about him. You know, everybody knows about, you know, Jackie Robinson and uh, Muhammad Ali, but this incredible athlete from way before them is fairly unknown. So I wanted them to give me the blessing to put their, you know, symbol of their whole club in Denver. You know, I didn't want to just show up and paint it and have them kind of say, like, what's this all about? Who approved this? And then I also wanted them to have the opportunity to, like, put the word out, get their members involved if they wanted to. Do you think that their buy-in was important because you're a white guy? I mean, yeah, why not? It's super important. I don't want to just show up and be like, hey, like, I'm this white guy painting this black athlete without that blessing. Not that their club is exclusively black. They have white members. They have black members. You painted this over the course of three days, as we said. Do your arms get tired? (laughs) No, no, my arms are fine. Uh, It was just happened to be um, during a pretty significant heat wave in the city. It seemed like I was told I missed all the rain, but working in 95 degree weather for eight hours a day for three days straight was pretty exhausting. And it seemed like no matter how much water I drank, I was still pretty exhausted and parched. Yeah, exactly. I wonder if uh, when you were growing up in Denver, you used to ride past the place on the trail where you would eventually do a cycling mural. Oh, absolutely. I lived here last in 2012, and I used to work at the Patagonia Denver store that's right on Blake Street, which is exactly where I painted. So I used to commute past that every single day. And when I was a kid, I started riding the Cherry Creek bike path on the back of my dad's bike in a little kid buggy. So I've been going past there longer than I can remember. This is a meaningful spot, in other words. Oh, exactly. Exactly. It's it's really awesome to be able to paint somewhere that has been such a big part of my life. Thank you for being with us. Absolutely. Thank you. Muralist John Pucci grew up in Denver. He's now based in San Diego. He just painted a mural of Major Taylor along the Cherry Creek Trail.
it's hard to say for sure what the first photograph was of Denver, simply because there might always be something older out there. But a librarian has now confirmed what is the oldest known snapshot of the city. Here's Brian Trembath describing the black and white image. It looks almost like it was off the set of a Western film. It's some pretty rough-hewn, false-front, frontier kind of buildings. You know, there's a couple wagons and a team of oxen. You can see in the background a flagpole. There's some lumber in the forefront, and on the left-hand side are the initials REC. R-E-C. We'll get back to that. The picture, Trembath says, is a 15th and Larimer, basically what we know today as Ryder and Larimer squares. That's where it all began. Trembath's investigation started after a patron asked about this photo deep in the library's archive. Was it the earliest photograph of Denver? We can safely conclude that it's one of the earliest. I feel pretty comfortable saying that it's from that 1859 to 1860 era For context, in 1859, James Buchanan was president. Colorado wasn't yet a state, and bicycles were only just getting pedals. Now to those initials on the photo, REC. We have plenty of evidence that puts the photographer, Rufus E. Cable, in Denver at that time. But this story ends with a challenge, a plea of sorts. Think you know of an earlier image of Denver? Tell the library. That'd be great. We'd love to see something like that. Special Collections Librarian Brian Trembath of the Denver Public Library. I've tweeted the photo in question at CPR Warner. We ran across an unusual approach to addressing hunger a while back. This is actually like 12 years ago. It was a restaurant with no prices, where you pay what you can afford. Some pay more so others can pay less. I remember running into a customer who couldn't quite believe the business model. Are you kidding me? Pay what you feel comfortable with? I was like, they're going to be out of business in no time. Not true. Same cafe, it stands for So All May Eat, is still around, in the same location on Colfax. It was the first nonprofit restaurant in Colorado where people can exchange money or volunteer time for a meal. And now Same Cafe has gone mobile. The restaurant's new food truck is in gear, serving communities in food deserts, says owner Brad Rubendale. So we're focusing in the Gloveville, area Swansea neighborhood, and we're partnering on that side of things with nonprofits who are feeding our target demographic. So that's kind of half of the time. And then the other half of the time, we are going to be out spreading the mission of Same Cafe through traditional food truck activities, including on Sundays, we're at the farmer's market in front of East High School. And then we just take random folks that say, hey, we want to have your food truck come down to our business and feed our employees for a while. And those folks pay full price to support Same Cafe's mission. If you can't afford that or volunteering in the kitchen doesn't work for you, We do have a little card, a participation card, that is kind of a pay-forward model where they can circle, you know, I'll pick up trash in my community or fill in the blank. They'll, like, be able to fill out what they want to do. They sign it and take it with them because the idea is that we want to trust people to be good citizens, and we're never going to turn anybody away. But we do have that option for folks that are in the communities that we're in that are in need. So you get free food and, in turn, volunteer in your community. Let's take this opportunity to listen back to our most recent visit about a year ago to the same cafe restaurant on Colfax. The lunch rush is just starting when we arrive. A handful of volunteers bustle around the kitchen, which sits in plain sight behind the counter where you order. 
Any salad for you today? Uh, nothing. All righty, cookie? Uh, yeah, I'll do. Uh-huh. The day's menu is on a chalkboard, and every day is something new, often something kind of fancy sounding. On the menu today, we have a Brazilian coconut shrimp and chicken stew, potato leek soup, a mixed green garden salad, a Brussels sprout, Parmesan, kale, and... She keeps listing the day's choices. This is Letitia Steele, head chef at Same Cafe. She's been in the culinary world for 27 years and has worked at top restaurants in Hawaii and Colorado. So why did she choose to be Same's first full-time employee? Same Cafe gives my life purpose. It gives my food purpose. You're not just cooking for people who blindly come in and they just want to be at the next cool restaurant. They're coming in here because they need that nourishment. They need to leave here feeling healthy. This might be the only meal that they get. And it might be their only interaction with a group of humans that treat them like a person. And yet, this isn't just a place for people in dire need, says the new executive director, Brad Rubendale. We have everyone from millionaires who come in from the suburbs to business people to folks experiencing homelessness, and everyone comes in and eats together. We met a high school teacher the day we visited, saw a group of nurses on their lunch break, and we met Amy O'Connor, who's homeless. She was staying in a Denver shelter after leaving an abusive relationship. O'Connor says she eats at Same Cafe because the food is healthier than what she typically gets at a shelter. I feel like my nutritional needs um, are not met there, and um, I definitely don't want to sound ungrateful, but it's not. Sometimes I don't even consider it edible. It's interesting because a lot of it is, they're both based on donations, but I mean, the quality is just like polar opposite, you know, like here I can get a variety of fresh greens and you know, fruits and vegetables. There it's like taco meat and like taco shells or like spaghetti. And then some days they just mix a bunch of stuff together and make like a sort of soup or, you know, for lunch it's like a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. O'Connor says she comes to Same Cafe for more than the food. She says the community here is special. She's treated with respect which can be hard to come by when you're homeless. As I've gotten, I guess you could say, like, poorer and poorer, um, you know, like, the ability to keep up your appearance change. A lot of people don't know, like, can't tell I'm homeless, but some people can, and it's just, like, the difference, I guess, in the way that people treat you day to day. Like, you may, you might ask someone for directions or for the time, and... They just like, they're like, oh crap, this chick's homeless. And they get a little scared and they just like walk faster and like ignore you. But then on the on the flip side of that, with guys who like harass women on the streets, they think that they can get away with more with you because you're homeless. So I've had a lot of instances here, especially like on Colfax Street, like the other day, some guy like lunged at me outside at the McDonald's and like tried to grab my breast and I had to like hit him basically, push him away off of me and like ran into the McDonald's. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> it's really dehumanizing. Um, yeah, to, you know, to say the least. Especially if you're a trauma victim and then, um, so you don't interact with the world the same as other people as it is on the daily and then to top it off to have to deal with like people harassing you, you know, just because you don't have a car or you don't live in a nice area or whatever the reason is, like, it adds to the toll at the end of your day, of your overall experience. And it's just like, uh, it's just like, it's really taxing on your well-being, so. O'Connor wiped away tears as she spoke. 
Brad Rubendale, the head of the cafe, offered her a hug. We also met Patrick Hale, who's been volunteering at Same Cafe for years. Well, for me, I, I typically open up on Monday morning and, you know, make sure all, you know, tables and seats are clean. I moved all the tables outdoors and whatnot. I, I put about an hour in and that entitles me to two meals. Hale recounted one of the most meaningful experiences he's had here. About six months ago, I had a bike crash. I got hit by a car. So I was laid up. Couldn't really walk or anything. And but I was able to get up. And the first place I went was come down here. And they welcomed me. And I said, well, you know, I can't really get up and walk around any. And they said, that's fine. We'll just have you, you know, doing utensils. Maybe you can roll utensils or something. But, you know, you don't need to have to walk around. And I, that really, um, that really tugged at my heartstrings. I mean, you know, to say, yeah, you know, we can use you either way. A new addition since we came to Same Cafe a decade ago is a token program. Each wooden token says one free meal at Same Cafe. Brad Rubendale explains. They're kind of multi-purpose. One is if you work a little extra, we can give someone a meal token. Um, But then we also are using them to let people have an option for giving people something on the streets. So if people have the means, we're asking them to cover the full cost of one meal that it costs us to deliver the meal, which is about $12. And then they can carry this around and give it to someone on the streets. Because I know some people don't necessarily want to give cash to people on the streets for a variety of reasons. And I have no opinion on that one way or another. But this does give people an option to connect someone to a healthy meal as well. What are the challenges of this work? Um, I, I wonder if sometimes people come in who are struggling with mental illness or and as a result maybe more difficult than the average customer. Um, you know, th- this is a, a restaurant and this is a, a charity. Yeah, you know, it's Some people see that as a challenge, but I see it as an opportunity to love people that don't usually get to access that love. So we we understand that everyone has a story, and we try to approach everyone from a trauma understanding perspective. So if someone is yelling at us, it's probably not about us. They've probably experienced something else today or in their life that really is challenging, and they're taking it out on us because we're the closest person. So um, yes, it's challenging, but we also recognize that everyone has a story, and we want them to be able to express their story here. And nine times out of ten, if you, if you uh, respond in kindness, they kind of deflate and they'll share what's actually going on. Um, of course, we do have the people that are experiencing mental illness that is challenging in here at times, but we just have really strong boundaries. If people are not at their best, we don't l- allow them to eat here. So we'll give them a granola bar and let them come back a different day. Um, so that includes if they're impaired from alcohol or drugs or if they have a mental health issue that prohibits them from participating. Because we are such a participation-based restaurant, everyone here is participating, whether that's through giving some money or time, but everyone has to participate. And if you can't participate, it's not going to work. Our community doesn't work. Rubendale's plans include more locations and a food truck. I would love to see a same cafe in every major metropolitan area or a version of this. And there are over 50 that have been inspired by same cafe in the country now. Um, I would love to be able to really capture the secret sauce and make sure that gets transferred. Because, you know, there's a couple ways this model can go off the rails. One is it can be a place where wealthy people feel good about eating, but it doesn't actually achieve the mission. The other is it can become a soup kitchen and it never actually is sustainable. So we feel like, of course, we're biased, but we feel like we've really done a great job of keeping that 50-50 balance of people who love what we do and give extra and people who need what we do and are able to give a little bit less.
That is Brad Rubendale, executive director of Same Cafe in Denver. They just launched the first Same Food Truck, serving Latin bowls, Buddha bowls, and yes, urban goddess bowls. I'm guessing you won't think of opera when you hear this. All right, there, boys, and one, one, get four. I'm a twenty-five, and get thirty, but I get thirty-five, and get forty, 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 but I get forty-five, and get fifty. That's the voice of Cookie Lockhart, the first woman inducted into the National Auctioneers Hall of Fame. Opera Steamboat just received a grant to create a new opera called Cookie, about the life and times of Lockhart. With a career that spans more than half a century, she's been called the nation's leading lady auctioneer. My interview with Lockhart in 2007 remains one of my favorites. She had just been inducted. Cookie, welcome to Colorado Matters. Thank you. I want to know how you decided to become an auctioneer. Uh, My father and my brother were both auctioneers. And so I guess it ran in the family or in my blood or something. But it was actually my mother suggested I go to auction school. And I gave her that deer-in-the-headlight look and said, I thought that was for boys. She said, no, I think you'd be good at it. And so I got on a train and went to Mason City, Iowa, to auction school. I didn't know that there were auction schools. Oh, so many people say that, and there's so many auction schools, it's unreal. There are, there's an auction school in Texas, Missouri, Kansas, um, Iowa. You know, there's just numerous auction schools. Were you, like, the only woman? I was. I thought I was supposed to have a roommate, but when I got there... Uh, she didn't show up. So there was 126 men and me. And this is in what year? 1966. 66. Yes. You, were you born there then? I was not. You you <laughs> predate me by by a few Uh-oh. years. <laughs> I knew you were going to get me there. Yeah. <laughs> now, is it strange to be the only woman there? Oh, yes. I guess. I mean, it was in a, and it wasn't. I mean, I was more interested in the school and learning what I was supposed to and it was sort of a man-dominated world at the time, and and every seminar, every convention I went to for several years, I was the only woman in the meetings. What did you learn at auction school? Well, at the initial auction school, like where I was talking about, you mostly learn um, the rhythmic, uh, whatever you want to call it. You know, some people call it chatter, and it's just that rhythmic tone that keeps the action going, and keeps people interested, and uh, it's in between the numbers. You know, you're really not saying much of anything. At 25, would you give 30? But you don't ever hear that, would you give? If I was saying, at 25, would you give 30? Would you give 30, 30, 30, would you give 30? So you can kind of hear that, would you give? Would you give, would you give? And they have you count by two and a half to 100, forward and backward, about 600,000 times. And you say the different jingles, like... um. Betty bought a, bought a bit of butter, but she said this butter's bitter. If I put it in my batter, it'll make my batter bitter. Everyone knows that one. That's an auctioneer. <laughs> I see. <laughs> oh, there was a lot of tongue twisters. Now, imagine, you know, as an auctioneer, you've got to know how to sell so many different things. I mean, do you learn the language of what you're selling, if it's furniture or what have you? Sure. People say, uh, what have you sold? And my answer is... I've sold bulls, buttons, buffalo, bulldozers, rabbits, rakes, ratchets, and real estate. (laughs) And so is the language for bulls different from real estate? Yes, it would be. And if you were selling registered ones, of course, you would know that. 
you know, I really specialize in real estate auctions, like estate sales and real estate. And in today's market, you're seeing more and more real estate sold at auction. And it's not the last chance or, or you know, a foreclosure necessarily, just a fast way to cash. If they come to me, I'll sell it in 30 days. And I guess an, an auctioneer works for him or herself, or, or you do at least. Yes, I do. Um, it's my company. So what does it mean to be in the um, Hall of Fame and to be the first woman uh, to be inducted? That just means just about everything. I guess that would probably be everyone's dream in the back of their head, but, you know, there was always talk around it's just a boys club and, you know, they'll never put a woman in there. So it was always a dream of mine, and and it's like my dream came true. Um, I was just about in shock. It's it was just a, the most fun time, the most spectacular, you know, moment of my life. It was the most magical moment, I guess. Are there more women auctioneers now than when you started? Oh, absolutely. They had to start having a women's division in the auctioneer contest. There were so many of them, and this year there were probably. 40 women, I, I'm guessing, at the uh, women's auctioneer get-together. I've had letters galore written to me, you know, since this has happened and thanking me for doing the trailblazing and showing women they could do whatever they wanted to do or made up their mind to do. It, it wasn't just a man's world. So that made me pretty proud. Well, Beth, well, Cookie, thanks so much for talking with us. We really appreciate it. Well, you're welcome. Thank you for interviewing me. Cookie Lockhart of Steamboat Springs, we spoke in 2007 when she became the first woman inducted into the National Auctioneers Hall of Fame. That remains one of my favorite interviews. Opera Steamboat has received a grant to create an opera about Lockhart's life. Thanks for spending time with us. That's Colorado Matters for today from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner.